Hello, my name is David Lesner, and I'm one of the pastors at Creekwood United Methodist Church. We are located in Fairview, Texas, right east of Allen, just north of the Dallas area. The sermon you're about to hear was recorded at one of our worship services, which we'd love to invite you to check out live at 8.30 a.m. for traditional or 11 a.m. for contemporary on Sunday mornings on our Facebook page or the recorded version on YouTube. We'd love for you to check out our social media pages at Creekwood UMC or our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more information about what is happening and how you can grow with us in our mission to share God's love. If you feel inspired, there's also a way to give at the top of the website. Thanks for listening to this sermon, and we hope it inspires you in your journey with God. Well, our scripture verse today comes from Mark chapter 3. It's going to be verse 13, and then we're going to go to 33. Um, And and not so much of just a flat-out story, but just an invitation for us to live into what Jesus is telling his disciples here. So Mark chapter 3, verse uh, verse 13. And he said to them, Mark chapter 4, verse 13. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? Then how will you understand all the parables? With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them except in parables, but he explained everything in private to his disciples. And this is the word of God for the people of God. Let us say, thanks be to God. So in working through the last seven, eight weeks of sermons, Carrie Lynn and I are going to co-preach this uh, sermon as we uh, explore some of your questions and look at the larger question behind some of the questions. I saw statistics recently, and those of you who are on social media may have seen this fly around if you're in the religious circles that I am, but these statistics we're talking about um, in the Gospels, Jesus is asked 187 questions. Um, was around for three years, only got 187 questions. You'd think maybe he would have gotten a few more, but 187 questions. Guess how many of those questions he gives a direct answer to? Eight. So higher than zero, he did good there. Uh, eight. 187 questions gives a direct answer to eight of those. What he most often does is answer a question by asking another question, inviting someone to dig deeper in their own thoughts. So Jesus has asked 187 questions. He asks 307 questions throughout the Gospels because Jesus doesn't seem to be very interested in followers who can simply recite knowledge or uh, he didn't seem to be after intelligence or memory as a primary uh, quality of his followers. What Jesus seems to be after in his followers is wisdom and leadership. Because Jesus' followers are meant to lead people towards Jesus' wisdom. And I'll quote one of my uh, mentor's favorite quotes. Uh, His name is Lovett Weems, and he says, Leaders don't always have the right answer. Leaders typically have the right question." Now, y'all asked four really good questions throughout the entire course of the summer. Um, One of those was, are there dinosaurs in the Bible? Um, Which the question was actually, if I'm reading word for word, when did dinosaurs exist? 2,000 years ago or billions of years ago? But the question actually behind the question is, how do we read the Bible literally in light of the evidence that paleontology gives us? Now, the data behind an answer, if I were just going to give you a flat-out answer, would be that carbon dating puts the most recent dinosaur at 65 million years ago. But if you take the Bible as the fact and figures, working backwards from Jesus through Genesis, then that would juxtapose against uh, 65 million years ago. If you take the Bible literally, Bishop James Usher, a long time ago in Scotland, figured it out to be, um, I think it was November 21st of 4004 B.C., 
exactly when the world was created. But that, so that didn't answer the question. I could also, I could tell you about references in Psalms or Job to a great sea creature named Leviathan that people seem to have some awe and respect and mystery around or fear of. There's another reference to a big behemoth. It's literally named behemoth in Job. It seems to have been an elephant probably, um, but we don't know the answer to that. Um, but that still isn't an answer to the exact question of are there dinosaurs in the Bible? Because the truth is that the purpose of the Bible isn't to answer specific scientific detailed questions like the timeline of the dinosaurs versus the humans and the Bible. And the same could be said about the other two questions. There were two other questions that pertain to the feeding of the 5,000. One of them was um, what kind of fish was served to the people who ate the 5,000. Another one was did they eat it raw? Like did someone just have caught the fish and they started passing around sushi uh, to all the 5,000 men and the rest of the women and children who were there? And we can infer the most common fish caught in the Sea of Galilee is tilapia. So if you like tilapia, you're joining in with a biblical story of uh, we can infer that. Israelites often would smoke their meats. They would smoke their fish and dehydrate them so they could carry them around, and we can infer that. But the Bible doesn't answer those questions either, because the authors assumed their readers would know those details when they were reading the stories. They weren't consumed with the details like this. When the Bible becomes preserved as inspired and codified as sacred to us, that would, this gift that gets passed down as inspired words to join in with the story of God, they weren't answering specific detailed questions. They were really concerned about one question, and that is, what does it look like to be a follower of God? One of the questions that I wish the Bible answered is, why do mosquitoes have to exist? Although I found out from a friend this week, they do aid in chocolate production. So, figured that one out on our own. But the purpose of spending this summer in this series called The Classics, um, at first was this idea, we really wanted to just have fun this summer. Um, we wanted to kind of keep things lighthearted and maybe easy, and so that's why we, you see cartoon characters in the graphic and in the video. But what we figured out is putting together a sermon series that seemingly at first didn't have a rhythm or a common piece to it actually ended up having its own way that it moved for us this summer. Each week was a reminder of what we as followers of Jesus are called to do. So when we first started this series way back in June, which for some of us feels like a million years ago, we started on Pentecost and we talked about the Holy Spirit that came down on the people and taught them to speak different languages so that the message about Jesus could be spread to all different parts of the world. And my favorite story about what happened that week with this sermon happened in preschool Sunday school. Our preschoolers are following the same lessons and curriculum that we are learning in here. And so they learned about Pentecost that day, and they learned to call it Pentecost. And there was uh, Grady Simpson, who's about three years old, went home to his mom, and he said, Mom, do you know about the Holy Spirit? And his mom said, yes. And, he, and Grady goes, yeah, he's inside you. That's the Holy Spirit. And it's funny, but that's such a great reminder of what happened at Pentecost leaders and followers of Jesus receive the Holy Spirit, and just like Grady Simpson, they are excited to tell other people about it. When Grady told his mom about the Holy Spirit, he was a follower of Jesus. So the next Sunday was Trinity Sunday, where 
we looked at the transfiguration story, and it's not the exact trinity, but it's one figure of Jesus was all of a sudden joined by Moses and Elijah and these great prophets, and three came out of one. And we wondered if we would have the same reaction as Peter did, whose first reaction was, this is an amazing moment. Let me build an altar. Let me build a church. Let me stay in this place forever on the mountaintop with you, Jesus. And Jesus very quickly says, no, 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 we're not here to stay. We're here to go down the mountain and get to work. Because often we can want to uh, sanctify experiences and say, nope, it never needs to be different. We never need to move. And we look at the easy, comfortable spaces where we feel good about things. Whereas Jesus moves us to expand our horizons a little bit more. I got to experience this. I got to lead two of the pub theologies this summer where we met in local restaurants. And um, there was one, we were sitting in Boomer Jacks, and somebody was talking about um, how hard it had been to find a small group on Sunday morning. They just didn't seem to fit with the existing small groups that were there. And turns out all we had to do was leave the church for them to find a small group or throw in wings and beer, I guess, to make them comfortable. But it's an invitation in the transfiguration that followers of Jesus don't stay in the easy, comfortable places. They go down from the mountains into the valleys and on the plains and in the normal mundane areas of life to recognize where Jesus is and show others that Jesus is with them always. So the week after that was our VBS Celebration Sunday, and many of you in here followed many of our many requests, and you volunteered with VBS, and you've had a song about manna stuck in your head ever since June. Yeah! But we talked about the miracle of the story of the five loaves and two fish, and that week during VBS, our kids learned how to see the Bible and to see God through the different stories about food. Food that magically appeared, food that magically multiplied, food that was maybe boring and mundane and ended up being complained about. But the story about the five loaves and two fish that Jesus used to feed 5,000 people, the five loaves and two fish came from a young boy. And what I think is most interesting about the story that we talked about that week was that he gave all that he had with thousands of people around him. Followers of Jesus give everything that they have. The fourth week, if you remember, we went back to the beginning with Genesis chapter 1 through 3 where God creates this wonderful paradise for us to enjoy and just be ourselves in, be one with God and walk with God in the garden, but it doesn't seem to last very long. And even though it seems like a story from so long ago in the beginning of the Bible, it's this story that we continuously live into where we succumb to the pressures of shame and guilt or experience the power and the magnitude of shame and guilt, and it starts to inform us of who we think that we are. I think there was a billion-dollar industry that keeps telling us, no, I've just got the next quick fix. I've got the next thing that will make you feel better about yourself. And yet we continue to buy different products because those things never work out. And in Genesis, we explored how followers of Jesus, followers who know God, learn to trust that God called them good and that who we are as God's children is enough. And so followers of Jesus know that they are enough, or are learning that they are enough so that they can go and love others as enough as well. So the next week we talked about Elijah, one of the prophets in the Old Testament, and we are going to have an interactive moment to remember this sermon. So remember, Elijah went up on the mountain and there was a huge earthquake. 
There was a huge earthquake. And then there was a big rushing wind. That was much better than it was the week that we all did it, actually. <laughs> so way to redeem yourselves. But God did, or Elijah didn't hear God in the earthquake, didn't hear God in the rushing wind, but instead heard God in the complete silence. Elijah was somebody that had a relationship with God in the loud and the boisterous and the pyrotechnic moments. But in this part in Elijah's ministry, Elijah learned to listen for God in the silence. As a follower of Jesus, one of the most important things that we can do is to listen. To listen for God, to listen to God, but to listen to one another. To experience silence in whatever way we can find it. And to open our ears and open our eyes to see how God is speaking to us. I would say there was more of an awkward silence when Adam gave the sermon over the parables and decided to sit in his camping chair for about 45 seconds and eat his favorite gummy worms over here on the side. Twizzler, sorry about that. Don't get that so, wrong. I won't get that wrong. We're not concerned with the details. We're concerned with the overall point here today. So as Adam introduced this specific parable about a man who had so much that he uh, just instead of sharing or building a bigger table, he just built a bigger barn so that he could store up even more for himself, so he could have his own moment away from everybody in isolation and experience. But how parables, the way that Jesus asks the question through a story, invite us into a moment where we have to reflect on who we are in that story, and they cause us to look in the mirror to wonder, um, are we truly seeing the world from just a self-centered perspective where we are always the central character, the most important figure in the story? Or is God doing something bigger around us that we are a part of, that we can be a supporting character of what God is doing in the story? And so followers of Jesus, when they hear these parables, it's mandatory to ask ourselves, are we simply living into what we would like or are we seeing the world from God's perspective? So then next week, we reviewed the story of Jonah, and we learned a couple of things together, right? Was Jonah true or false? Jonah was swallowed up by a whale. False! We learned it was a big fish, right? But we learned about, we reviewed this story of Jonah, this guy who receives instructions from God to go on a desert walk, to a place, and instead he gets in a boat and goes as far away the other direction as he possibly can. So he's swallowed up by a fish for a few days, and he experiences the grace and the forgiveness of God by being thrown up a little bit out of a fish, and then he goes and does what God told him to do. And usually that's where the story of Jonah ends, but we looked at the whole book that week, and we read that last chapter, which is a little bit uncomfortable because Jonah does what God tells him to do. He goes and he tells the people of Nineveh to repent, and they do. And so God offers grace to the people of Nineveh, and Jonah, who's a prophet, whose job it is to tell the truth, should have been dancing and doing cartwheels that the people of Nineveh are experiencing God's grace, but instead he marches himself out of the town, sits on a mountain, and begins to pout. And we talked about how easy it is to laugh at a guy like Jonah and some of the ridiculousness of his story, but we were reminded that sometimes we do the same thing. 
we experience God's grace. And some of us in our journey are still in that part where we are learning what God's grace means for us, how far it extends, how deep it goes. But that same grace is extended to other people. And not just the people that we like, but it's extended to people that attend that school, check that box in the voting booth, speak that language, live on that side of town, think that about God. God's grace is for us and God's grace is for all people. And the story reminded us that we as God's people are called to extend the same grace that we receive. We rejoice that those people get God's grace too. Followers of Jesus try to give just as much grace as they receive. When we give grace and we receive grace, we live into this spirit of Ubuntu that Adam taught us about as he walked through the wisdom of Solomon in this Ubuntu language that is not necessarily a concept, it's more of a way of life, recognizing that I am well because you are well, and you are well because I am well, and our mutual success is tied up in the success of all and each other, where the individual and the community equally matter to each other. And Solomon, who asked for, you know, was granted like one wish, essentially, and said, I would like to have the wisdom above all wisdom. I would like to have the wisdom of heaven, this perspective that we're gaining as we look through all these biblical stories. And at first he did. He built the temple that his father David had started to bridge the gap between the divine and the secular, to have a place where everybody could gather and to uh, live in God's presence together. But soon after he started getting the notoriety and the attention and all of a sudden it wasn't i am well because you are well it was i am well because i am well and we start to see where solomon starts becoming very self-centered and very self-absorbed and with his failures so the kingdom gets divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom and then we start to see all of the progression of kings and chronicles where the israelites start to fade into self-centeredness and non-Ubuntu. Now, the opposite was shown this week, actually. I walked in. We have a group that meets on Tuesday mornings that they, uh, a group of older ladies that get together and do art together, which you don't have to be an older lady. Anybody is uh, welcome to come do art. They meet at Tuesdays at 9.30 in room 110. And, and they were getting there, and they were sharing this kind of Ubuntu together. But I walked in and just said, hey, I really could use your artistic skill with this help for a specific youth ministry project. And I didn't even have to explain the project. They said, great, we're in. And I said, you don't, know, don't, you don't want to know what I'm asking you for yet? And they said, nope, as long as it helps out, we're good to go. And so I explained the project, and they took it, and they ran with it, and they are going to give it back to us next Tuesday to help out because one of the things they said is, you know what, if we can help any of the youth in our area, it benefits all of us. And so followers of Jesus learn when to ask the question, is it only good for me, or is it the best for everyone? And then last week, David talked to us about the prophetic works in the Bible. Every king in the Old Testament is partnered with a prophet. And we were reminded through the most delightfully hilarious children's time that's ever happened, that prophets tell the truth. 
A prophet's job is not necessarily to sit with a crystal ball or palm reading or tea leaves and tell you what your future's going to be, but instead a prophet tells you the direction you're moving is not the way you should be going. That you need to turn, you need to about face and go the other way and go back to God. And then when the prophets were given these truths, it, weren't, it wasn't a truth to deliver to people who were already doing the right thing, because that would be easy truth to deliver, but it, it was to help the people of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah when they were worshiping idols. And just like we have with other stories, it's easy to look and go, well, we don't necessarily worship other gods, right? I don't think any of you have a golden calf you're building in the backyard. But we do prioritize other things over God. We feel like we have to. And what's hard about the prophetic works is even though there's only 17 of them in the whole Bible, as preachers, we don't love giving messages that we know are going to be uncomfortable or make you feel bad about yourself. But even if we ignored those 17 books of the Bible, the prophetic words of God are found throughout the entirety of Scripture. God calls people to tell the truth from the very beginning. And even if we stuck with the words of Jesus, the letters in red, there's still hard, uncomfortable truth there. It was Jesus who said, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. It was Jesus who said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It was Jesus who said that when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do, so that they can be honored by others. And it was Jesus who said to love your enemies. We all want to feel closer to God. We want to feel like when we come to church and we show up and we have good attendance that we are getting something out of it. We also want this church to be an excellent community of loving and accepting people who are ready for the people who aren't here yet. But all of those things require considering hard truth, changing our actions, standing up for those who can't stand up for themselves. Because followers of Jesus are humble enough to listen to the prophets that are in their midst that are telling them the hard truth. As we wrap up this summer and we are looking forward to the fall, which is the start of our ministry year here at Creekwood, we know the start of school for a lot of us, we are entering into a really exciting time together. A lot of you in here have received a lot of emails from myself or David this week or this month asking you to find ways to serve here at church. You're receiving emails from us to consider being an usher, a greeter, a small group leader, a Sunday school teacher, a kitchen helper, an AV squad person, and many other jobs. And we want you to know that when we ask you these things, it is not to check a box, to put a warm body in a spot, to do a job that we don't want to do ourselves, and it's certainly never to make you feel bad about yourself. But instead, we ask you to do these things because we firmly believe that God has gifted you to do the job we're asking you to do. 
We know that if you are a person that can talk to a wall and still have a good conversation like me, you need to be at the door smiling and welcoming people so that maybe when somebody decides to come to church, they feel welcome in the first five seconds. If you're one of those detail-oriented people that can pay attention to the details, not you, uh, we put you in the kitchen because setting up for Sunday mornings and putting everything back properly in the place where it's supposed to go so that everybody can find it the next week. Now, some of you aren't getting this ask, along with David, but that's important. We have a shared kitchen that is used by the church maybe half the time. When we ask you to serve on the AV team, it's because we think you have a quick enough brain to fix problems when they inevitably happen with the sound or the screen or the lights. When we ask you to be a small group leader for teenagers or children, it's because we believe that you have the gift of presence. Not that you have all of the extreme biblical knowledge that's necessary, but instead you can sit with a teenager who's having a hard time because they failed their biology test and they need someone to tell them it's gonna be okay. We ask you to serve because we believe that God has gifted you and prepared you to do the job we're asking you to do, but we also do it because we know that serving is going to bring you closer to God. Serving is going to fill your cup rather than take from it. It is going to feed you. Because as Jesus said, he came to serve and not be served. And so followers of Jesus serve. So the wrap-up is you're being invited into a larger story. Each one of these individual stories, the details even in those stories, are more important to see within a larger narrative and a larger collective where you belong in God's grace. And I know that there is often pressure. I hear quite a bit that I don't want to join a Bible study because, well, I don't know enough about the Bible to join a Bible study. And I usually reply, that is why you join a Bible study is to know something about the Bible. Because I think we're expecting perfection. And I want you to know that I know that um, I also am not perfect. I received a text message from my wife that I mispronounced tilapia while I was up here, or one of the kids, at least. That I received a text message that I mispronounced tilapia while I was preaching. (laughs) Because we're all in a learning phase. We're all in a learning process. We are all on a journey that we are invited to explore together. And when we are asking you to learn or share your gifts or explore with us, it is about exploring the question, if we've asked ourselves lately, how am I doing? How am I as a follower of Jesus? I think that's the beauty of how Jesus leads his followers, as we saw in that Mark 4 passage, where I don't think Jesus was being demeaning when he said, well, if you didn't get this parable, how are you going to get the rest of the parables? I don't think it was, well, you missed this detail, so you're an idiot, and you're not going to get the other details along the way. I think it was a question of saying that you should try and explore this parable because this parable will help you with the other parables. It's about a larger picture, and if you don't try in this story, if you don't try in this parable, well, then you're not going to get the fuller and the bigger picture of things that I'm inviting you to be in to, and recognizing that it's often the places of admission where we don't know that God works 
in humility and mysterious power to empower us to something that we didn't even know we were capable of. To invite us to continue asking, how do I further follow Christ? And maybe God might have a way that we have never even thought of before. That's why I'm really excited for our young people as I was, you know, working with Carrie Lynn and brainstorming with Carrie Lynn and Jen Waldrop and Rick Adler and other people that she's been working with to uh, lead us off into the fall for our young people. I'm excited how they're going to explore in age-appropriate ways that they can know with their head and their heart that God loves them and they are part of a larger story no matter what age they find themselves to be at this existing point. Brainstorming with Adam, I'm excited about those adults who are going back into their small groups or who are starting new small groups or new studies that we're going to initiate maybe on Wednesday nights. There's this refreshing excitement I have that of all the high-achieving, successful, type A people that we have in Lucas, Fairview, and McKinney, these people who on one hand have achieved it, they're humble enough to walk into a room with other people and say, what have I not considered yet? What have I not thought of yet? What have I not done with y'all yet? I'm part of something larger than myself, and I want to be something that belongs in God's unfolding story. And this is where I gain a lot of inspiration from Mark chapter 4, but even more from Mark chapter 3, because that's when Jesus goes and handpicks 12 guys who get the first question they're asked wrong on the test. Jesus handpicks 12 guys who don't know anything and says, come follow me. I want you to be my closest inner circle. And these 12 guys are not perfect, and they are not equipped, and they are not ready. And yet these are the people whom Jesus asks to go into the world and proclaim his name. And I think there's a, holy, a holiness about the mystery of walking forward in faith without the certainty. A holiness about, yes, we can ask all the details, and I geek out over the details in Scripture, and I love history and science and all of those really mechanical things, but there is a holiness in walking forward in mystery and knowing that we rely on nothing but God in the future to get us there. And that's the faithfulness that followers of Jesus have. The faithfulness of followers of Jesus who recognize there's a story that's larger than themselves. And that we're all part of a church, and that church is part of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is given to us by God so that we might do more than we could by ourselves. We might be more than we could by ourselves so that our yes to following Christ, to looking outside of ourselves, might bring a world about that we've never even imagined by ourselves. So that's why. Thanks for listening. We would love if you could leave us a review on whatever platform you are listening today and let us know how we are doing. Be sure to check out our social media pages at Creekwood UMC and our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more ways to get involved at Creekwood United Methodist Church in person, online, or both. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.